Good morning. Wasn't that fun to have the kids in service? That was so fun. Mike, well done leading us as we uh, got some energy expensed. And my hope is that as you hear this message today, you'll laugh. You might even tear up a little. You might say amen. You might say, that ain't right, pastor. You can, you know, there are things that you can be responding with. And I just, before I even really begin the sermon, I just want to say, like, we're grateful you're here. We just are. Because being able to be together and worship this king that we proclaim every single week is such a wonderful experience, especially as we get to do it together on Sunday mornings and in community and community groups. And so I say that sounding all serious because what I'm about to share, I'm going to have a tough time getting through because it is not as serious. Here we go. There was a rather old-fashioned lady who was planning a couple weeks vacation in Florida. She was quite delicate and elegant with her language. She wrote a letter to a particular campground and asked for reservations. She wanted to make sure that the campground was fully equipped, but didn't quite know how to ask about the toilet facilities. She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter. After much deliberation, she finally came up with the old-fashioned term, bathroom commode. Anyone? Anyone remember this term? All right, a few of you. All right. But when she wrote that down, she still thought it was being a little bit too forward. So she started all over again, rewrote the entire letter, and referred to the bathroom commode simply as the BC. Does the campground have its own BC, is what she actually wrote. Well, the campground owner was not old-fashioned at all, and when he got the letter, he couldn't figure out what the lady was talking about. That BC really stumped him. After worrying about it for several days, he showed the letter to other campers, but they couldn't figure out what the lady meant either. The campground owner finally came to the conclusion that the lady was and must be asking about the location of the local Baptist church. Don't get ahead of me. So he sat down and wrote the following reply. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campsite and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. <laughs> I admit it is quite a distance away if you are in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. <sighs> they usually arrive early and stay late. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago. <laughs> and it was so crowded, we had to stand up the whole time we were there. It may interest you to know that right now there's a supper plan to raise money to buy more seats. They plan to hold the supper in the middle of the BC <laughs> so everyone can watch and talk about this great event. <sighs> Woosa. I would like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but it is surely not for lack of desire on my part. As we grow older, it seems to be more and more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. <laughs> if you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time that you go, sit with you and introduce you to all the other folks. This is a very friendly community. <sighs> Truth is that many of us misunderstand and possibly even misrepresent what the church actually is. You're welcome. 
Thank you for joining us as we continue and conclude our four-week series on the emphasis and values here at Church of the Valley. And if this is your first time hearing one of our sermons, they don't always start with bathroom jokes, I promise. We provided this series that we've been going through with the hope that those in attendance would get an idea about what we as a community value and emphasize, which so far we have described, if you've missed the past three weeks, as the gospel, the finished work of Christ, the evidence of the resurrection. And last week, we spent our time specifically in sanctification or spiritual growth. We have followed a heart head and hands model, and this week we will be discussing house, that we value the church community and we really emphasize the responsibility that goes along with leading and serving here at Church of the Valley. I became a Christian at 20 years of age, that was 21 years ago, and when I did, I had all those questions that most people had. Did Jesus go to the restroom like everyone else? Why do Christians sing music that sounds so last decade? Why come to a building to worship God if he is everywhere? And then I had questions that probably were more serious and addressed in scripture like, what are elders and why should we care? Why do people tend to go to church when they feel like it rather than be excited to gather and learn more about Jesus all the time? And when I was 20, there was no way in HE double hockey sticks that I would ever think that I would go from a young adult who was literally skeptical about everything to a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the Lord not only works in mysterious ways, he knows how to grow people in ways that they would not dictate themselves. So today we talk about the house, or really our view on the church of the living God because the church is not the steeple, it's the people. And we wanna talk about what we do here as a community. I hope each of us see that it is a gift to be part of God's holy family and gathered as a church community. So today we're going to essentially cover six different points or chapters, or I don't even know what to call them, but we want you to know as you've been a part of COV or you're checking out Church of the Valley, and maybe you already know these, but we want to give some language to them. The first one is probably not surprising, especially based on what Pastor Mike just read. Number one, Church of the Valley is built upon the confession that Jesus is the son of the living God. So don't get that twisted. We are about that confession. And I think when churches begin, they have the hope of doing something new, something grand, something not done before. And I'm just going to be really honest with you. When I was a church planner, when I planted a church many years ago, there was a youthful and possibly immature angst in me that said everyone else was doing it wrong and I want to do it right. But the reality was I also wasn't doing it right because in my attempts to create something new and distinct and fresh, I wasn't necessarily looking at the scriptures and the historical work of the Holy Spirit over thousands of years. I was just trying to be entrepreneurial and wanted to do things differently. So church, I don't know when or if that has completely changed in me. I'm still in process, and you're going to hear that pretty consistently, how much I'm in process, but I know that there are godly men and women sitting in these pews and serving in children's ministry right now that hold me to the scriptures. They question they care for, and they challenge my thinking against the Word of God, because if I'm not doing my best to be consistent within these writings, I'm not really sure what we're doing here, guys. 
Jesus, when speaking to his disciples a while before Jesus goes to the cross and rises from the dead, has this somewhat intimate moment with his disciples, and Matthew, or Levi, writes about this, and Jesus asks his disciples who people tend to believe that he is. And so, as Mike read, I'm going to read it one more time, verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And I wonder as you sit here, if maybe you have someone on your mind that you would wonder what they say if asked this question, who do people say that Jesus is? Maybe a good teacher, maybe a good guy, maybe a guy who can make you a little bit better of a person. And they replied, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus retorted, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, of course he did, because Peter tended to be the spokesperson for the disciples. He said, you are the Messiah, that means Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus asking the question, probably more for the benefit of the disciples than him being curious because he knows what they were going to say. And he inquires about the general public belief about who Jesus is. And they say a prophet, someone who speaks for God and even lists some second comings of who he might be. Then he directly asks the disciples and Peter, the spokesperson for the disciples, he asks him, who do you say that I am? What a great question for literally every single one of us hearing my voice to wrestle with. Who do we say that Jesus is? And perhaps we could go a step further because I think talk is cheap, don't you? Who do we act like Jesus is? Who do we act like Jesus is? My oldest daughter has a boyfriend. He's a nice kid. He's respectful. But I noticed that he was quite shy around me. (laughs) Aaron and I were talking about him, because that's what we do, and Aaron mentioned that he wasn't actually shy. And I was like, what? So the other day, Reagan asked if we could pick him up from, from, or pick him up to take him to school on the way to taking Reagan to school, and I said, of course. And so we drove up to his house, he gets in the truck, and I told him about the conversation that I had with Aaron, and asked him if he was shy. And his response, sometimes, depends on whom, who I'm around. And so I asked, well, you seem to be shy around me. Does that mean you're a bit intimidated by me? And he said, yes. And I said, good. (laughs) The reality is that we can say we believe Jesus to be something, but do our actions actually back up our words? Who do we act as if Jesus is? Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And I'm guessing Peter wanted to be patted on the head. The Messiah, the Christ, the one that the scriptures hundreds, thousands of years before had testified about who would be sent by God to redeem God's people. That's you, Jesus. Peter's confession is one that is incredibly special. And then Jesus says, this was revealed to you, not by your intellect, Not by cracking some code, but by my father who made this known to you. And then Jesus calls him, calls Simon, which was his Jewish name, Peter, which means little pebble. That Jesus would build his church on what? Was it on Peter, the little pebble? 
No, I don't think it was. I think it's on the confession that was revealed to Peter by God the Father that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. What more important confession could any of us have in this room? What more important stand could we make on something than Jesus is the Messiah? Jesus is the Lord. He is the point. And because of this confession, the church was born. It was born to testify to this truth, to grow in Christ's likeness and to glorify God. And that is what we as a community intend to do. That is what we strive for. That is why we gather. That is why we spread out all around the Bay Area. How many of you don't live within two miles of this building? Would you raise your hand real quick? Yeah, we're not all that close. We're close, we're close. But not that many of us are that close. And we want to confess that Jesus is the Lord. We want to grow to look more like him internally, and we want to glorify him externally in this life and the next. And yet we tend to treat church a little differently. Hear this pastor's sarcastic rant about sporting events and see if you pick up what he's putting down real quick. He says, football is in the fall. Basketball is in the winter. Baseball is in the spring and summer. This pastor has been an avid sports fan all of my life, but I've had it. I quit this sports business once and for all. You can't get me near one of those places again. You want to know why? Every time I went, they asked me for money. (laughs) The people with whom I had to sit didn't seem very friendly. The seats were too hard. (laughs) Not at all comfortable. And red. Sorry. (laughs) Didn't say that. I went to many games, but the coach never came to call on me. The referee made a decision which I could not agree. I suspected that I was sitting with some hypocrites. (laughs) They came to see their friends and what others were wearing rather than to watch the game. Some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. The band played some numbers that I had never heard before. It seems that the games are scheduled when I want to do other things. I was taken to too many games by my parents when I was growing up. I don't want to take my children to any games because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. Do you kind of see the point he's making? Here's the point I'll make. This is Jesus's church. This is Jesus's church. I might be on the website as the lead pastor, but I'm under Jesus Christ because this is Jesus's church. In John chapter 10, 11 through 16, Jesus speaking, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, Jesus says. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep. He runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, he says. And my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. We exalt Jesus through the confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we as a church come under his care. When this passage was taught years ago, when we were in the book of John, and I don't know, John Adams was president? I'm not even sure. It was a long time ago. Pastor Mike pointed out that I'm a sheep. 
Some of you remember, bah, I'm a sheep. Both work, but we're all sheep. And he even built some makeshift uh, uh, pen for us. Does anyone remember this? Like a bunch of us hit our heads on it. It was great. <laughs> but the point was that we're all sheep. The pastors, the elders, the servants, the regular attenders, and we're all sheep. And so we need the good shepherd. We need him to pastor and care for us. He does give roles in the church, like pastor. But don't look at me like you would Jesus, because I attempt to make it abundantly clear every single time I talk that I fail. That was like Marty McFly right then, yeah. <laughs> I will fail you. And any expect expectation you have for me to be perfect will be a future disappointment. But what I can offer is that I and the rest of the leadership are in the process of maturing. And that doesn't happen by accident. That happens through God's grace and through community. That's how we mature. So don't be at this church for me. Be at this church because you value, value the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. But if the gospel is true, if it's verified and proven through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if God forgives us of our sins and begins to grow and conform his people into his image through abiding daily in Christ, rather than maybe trying really hard to look holy, what better organization, or sorry, really organism, to be a part of than the church of the living God? And know that when we come together as a community, it's not always gonna be euphoric or mountaintop experience-ish, but it will be honest. And it will, we will do our best to always have Christ central to our gathering and our communion. Jesus says that his sheep know his voice. Bah, he, never mind. So where do we hear his voice? It's in his word because this is what we believe to be true. So Jesus seems to be giving some type of litmus test regarding being his sheep or not. Do you listen to what he says? Do you adhere to it? Do you take seriously what the word of God says? Because I know me, there are times I do not, if I'm honest. Because if you do, if you take seriously the word without trying to earn your salvation, because that's not how it happens, I would contend that you will grow if you take his word seriously. Maybe not as quickly as you'd like necessarily, but as we were taught last week, abiding in the Lord will shape and grow you over time. But even saying that, it's because it's implied in the word of God. I think I came personally. Now, all of you know, if you've heard me preach before, I've talked about how I didn't grow up in a church, but the church where I became a Christian, I think was a tradition that didn't actually take this too seriously. They possibly chose good advice over the good news and perhaps saw Christianity as a means to become a better person, not the way to know and be known by God whom we love and worship, which leads us to our next component of this community. The word of God are the actual words of God. That's what this is. Like God said this. And so you could be like, well, what about this? And what about that? Blah, blah, blah. That's for a different sermon. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 through 17, Paul the apostle, Paul, who was against Christianity, ran into the resurrected Jesus and didn't just stop killing Christians. He joined them to preach who Jesus is. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. 
it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I should just hold this the whole time. We as the community take the word of God very seriously without trying to justify ourselves by our ability to actually do what it says because we're not that good at it. Doing what it says is great. And if for the right reasons, it's on point. But even if I do everything right, I still need Jesus. Because being good is not my need. Being God's possession is. That's what I'm here for. I want to be more of God's. I want to be his. And so we take seriously what his word says. We believe it to be true. We believe it to be written by the Holy Spirit, inspiring messed up, valuable people like us to originally write an infallible book that contains the will of God revealed in the word of God written by the spirit of God. But it's all about him. And taking the Bible seriously means that we tend to look to it about how we see the world. More than a news program, more than social media, and more than even popular culture. Because if God is who he says that he is, he isn't outdated, he isn't irrelevant, he is up to date always, he's caring for his creation and revealing more of his glory as we remain in and walk with him daily. But as we have said many, many times before, how you interpret scripture matters. It really matters. Because people who attend church tend to be somewhat inconsistent in their interpretation of scripture, if we're honest. And those who casually identify as Christ into the Christian faith tend to be unbelievably off base when they quote the Bible and the meaning behind what is written. Many religions and or cults have taken the truth of this word and perversed it to say what they want it to say. So God can serve us rather than the other way around. It's easy to get the Bible to say what you want it to say. If you just stranglehold every verse, strip it of its context to fulfill your agenda of what you want it to say. You know, the Bible says that there is no God in the Psalms. And some people quote that and see, God doesn't even believe there's a God. No, it says there is no God, but you, the one true God, Selah. It's easy to get the Bible to say what you want it to say. So I'm going to get really, really practical. Some of you guys like practical. You're like, yeah, give me something to write down. Okay, here's some stuff to write down. But I also know what I'm about to share might be ignored by some of you, and I'm sorry, that stinks. Especially the fact that what I'm about to share is something that churches struggle with all the time. But I want to emphasize this. I want to labor on this point. I'm going to have inflection in my voice and slow down, so maybe you listen. Because what I'm about to share, if not paid attention to, creates cults. It makes people major in the minors. And I'd even contend run the race in vain, as we've quoted Paul saying a similar thing. So I want to talk about, you ready? Fancy word. Hermeneutics. A method of interpretation. That's all hermeneutic means. A method of interpretation. That's a literal definition. See, I can sound fancy too, not just Bishop Mike over there. <laughs> Here's some hermeneutics, methods of interpretation that we subscribe to. When we come to the scriptures, now what I'm gonna share isn't all the hermeneutics, 
all the hermeneutics. I'd say these seem to have helped do a good job of helping us understand the scriptures and be consistent with most, if not all, of orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy is a term that just means consistent and agreed upon over the past 2,000 years when it comes to scripture amongst a certain tradition. Here's my first hermeneutic. It's a big one, and you're not going to be surprised. The gospel is the point and the filter of this book. The gospel is the point and the filter of this book. Meaning, if we read it, assuming the purpose of this book is, I don't know, to make us a better person, we'll read into passages things that are not there. Take, for instance, the Beatitudes found in the book of Matthew, preached by Jesus, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. If being a good person is our filter, then when we read the Beatitudes, it begins in Matthew 5, it begins with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we read it with being a good person as our filter, we'll read into that that those who are poor financially or perhaps are humble enough are the ones that inherit the kingdom of heaven. But if the gospel is the filter, then the Beatitudes are the attitudes that be in Jesus's forgiven people. So poor in spirit doesn't have anything to do with economics or how much you give to the church or even trying to be something, but instead it is evidence of who God's people who have been forgiven are. But you don't earn the gospel. It's freely given, church. And so when we come to any of the scriptures, we come to it with the gospel in mind and we begin to interpret it, not with our emotions, not with our feelings or our priorities in mind, but with God's redemptive plan being exercised through Jesus in mind. Which brings us to the next hermeneutic. I think we need to keep in mind when we read God's word. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. We are not the heroes in scripture. We don't read story about David slaying Goliath and go, we are David, now where are my Goliaths? David was a precursor and an ancestor to Jesus. And while David had some pretty glorious moments in his life, he was a grade A letterman jacket wearing varsity sinner. Let's be real. And so when you come to the scriptures, come knowing that the scriptures are setting up, foreshadowing, explaining, or pointing back to Jesus's finished work on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. Let me say that again, because it's that important. When you come to the scriptures, know that the scriptures are either setting up, foreshadowing, explaining, or pointing back to Jesus's finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. I think I came to believe that the scriptures were to make me better when I first started to follow Jesus. To read them was to make me more holy. And yet those same scriptures tell me that it is only the God of the word that can make me holy. And then when I come to the scriptures, I'm not doing it out of duty or have to. I'm doing it because I'm forgiven and I want to. A pastor friend of mine swung by the church the other week and we were just going to like talk real fast. And so we talked for two hours, hashtag pastors. And we talked about the gospel and we talked about life. And then we talked about the gospel and we talked about life. And one thing he said that stood out to me even now was that preaching grace the way the Bible teaches it tends to not draw a crowd. If we want to draw a crowd, he pointed out, teaching the rules 
and how we can fulfill them, telling everyone what they can do to be saved will control and gather people, is what he was pointing out. Because people want to know what to do. Can we be honest? I do. Just me. Liars. Thank you. And yet the Bible is riddled with exactly what we must do to be saved. You believe in the one that saves you. Oh! Boom! And then people go, "Uh uh-huh, but what else can I do? You can believe in the one that saves you. That's what you can do. Abraham believed, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. He had right standing before God because he believed God. We treat the Old Testament like it was old. And I guess in, in when it was written, yeah, it was written years ago, but it's not old like an iPhone that we want to trade in. The Old Testament isn't to be discarded. It is to be regarded and revered for how it begins to reveal God's redemptive plan of salvation. From Adam to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, and many, many, many in between to Jesus' coming through the virgin birth, known as the incarnation, where God took on skin. He lived among us. He traded his life for ours through his death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. Woo! That's what we're about. Old Testament and new. But the Old Testament sets all of this up. The need, the coming of the Messiah throughout the whispers and the proclamation in the Old Testament Old Testament about what the new covenant was going to be about. So you have the gospel, which is the filter for the scriptures. Jesus is the hero. Now let's get, uh, let's talk about some that are more universally spoken about. Context determines meaning. It just does. It just does. Context determines meaning. So like, let me give you a quick example. Laughing at a joke is appropriate, right? If it's funny, I guess. Laughing at a joke during a funeral may not be as appropriate, right? Context determines meaning. And the context in which you read things in the scriptures ought to be applied how you interpret the meaning. This can be true in our everyday lives. It's definitely true in how we interpret the scriptures. And if we don't use this methodology, we will always be questioning meaning or we'll be making up meaning to suit our own desires for what the scriptures say. But if you want to be careful with what the word of God says, which I do think that everyone who comes up here or up there to teach really wants to get right, it's not just because they don't want to have an awkward conversation with me, which I'm sure most of them don't, but because they don't want to offend God by speaking for him when he didn't say what they are intending that he said. And beyond that, we especially don't want to lead people astray. There is such a huge, huge responsibility to opening these scriptures and explaining them to a group of believers and non-believers. We are entrusted with this truth. And so we are considerate to not just say anything we think, but to check what we understand with the meaning via the context. And then here's another interpretive method that is super helpful when we want to do when we want to teach what the text implies rather than just how we feel. But we encourage everyone in the church body also to pay attention to this, especially when we're studying on our own, and it'll stop sounding like a Bible class in just a second. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
The idea that scripture does not contradict itself, because it doesn't, it contradicts us, is really hard for people to take. If we are focused on being the hero ourselves in the scriptures, or the Bible's purpose is to make us a better person, we tend to make scripture contradict other scripture, but that isn't what it does. It enhances our understanding of God. But when we use the hermeneutic of scripture interpreting scripture, we start to see a more fuller understanding of who God is. If the purpose of this sermon was to explain all the ways that the Bible can do this, we'd be here for quite a while. But let me just point out what I've already said. Scripture, how we interpret Scripture matters. How we interpret Scripture matters. While I don't think anyone would argue about any of these interpretive methods that I've shared already, I think where they tend to be dismissed or disliked is when they are emphasized. They are valued, and they become a way to filter scripture and its meaning more than popular opinion or feelings. So why is this a problem? Because how we interpret scripture matters. And it's part of the equipping process. So look, Paul says this to Timothy. I'll read it one more time. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So those who trust and follow Jesus will be equipped for every good work. A good work in the sense is not what society says a good work is. Things like feeding the poor or helping a little old lady across the street are good things. We ought to do these things. But what Paul is pointing out are actually when you obey God in his word. And when this work is done, when it's done for the right reasons, when it's not to justify or exalt yourself, that's not a good work. It's when you do something out of love for God and his commands, that's a good work. And the word equips us in this. And so, here's my next point. Equipping at COV is not optional. It is intentional. It is not optional. It is intentional. We touched on this last week, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Last week, we touched on this especially about the reality that God builds up his church. But how does he do that? He gives gifted roles to the church to what? To equip. Equip or train. Give people the opportunity to learn how to do something. If you notice, we don't always have the same people teaching up here every week. We don't have the same people leading worship every week. We don't have the same people doing tech ministry every week. Those who served in children's this week don't always serve in children's every week. And honestly, we want to share the opportunity for people to grow and serve and be sanctified. Equipping means that we don't think too highly of ourselves. So much so that we think we have to be the one doing something in order for God to get the glory. Last year, the elders gave me a sabbatical. It was so nice. And I needed it personally. I needed it spiritually. And after a very hard year of pastoring, and I don't know, a thing called a pandemic, the church didn't just survive while I was gone. It thrived. Even though I wasn't in the pulpit or leading any meetings or being in charge in any way, the church was just fine. You know why? Because it's Jesus' church. 
So we want to equip in every area of ministry because the church body is made up of different parts. And many people can do many things. I had a week this past week where I ran in and spent more time with pastors and met with pastors than I normally do. And when I would be asked, here's what pastors do to one another all the time. Hey, hey, how's your church? That's what we say to one another. It's weird. (laughs) My mind went to the fact that our community is thriving. You know why? Because we're equipping. And how do I know that? Because we have leaders who have not only learned to not work harder, but they work smarter. But even though at first it might be harder to equip someone rather than just do it yourselves. I've got plenty of stories of my wife teaching my kids how to do dishes. And at first it was rough. Now it's their chore. But our leaders, especially on staff, are not doing any and everything themselves but are sharing the responsibility and helping others grow and learn how to serve the Lord in various ways also. Because building up the body of Christ is a team effort of being willing to equip. And check it, I'm gonna quote my friend Laura, it's not just being willing to equip, it's being willing to be equipped. I don't see a lot of people that come in here and go, well, at my last church, I did this, that, and the other thing. You wanna make my eyes glaze over, that's a good way to say it. But people are just go, hey, I want to learn. I want to be a part of stuff. We've got tons of gifts in this place. And it wasn't because everyone was like, hey, I used to do this. It was because it was just obvious in them because they were passionate about it. And we watch people be equipped. So a model that we tend to use, maybe not religiously, but we glean wisdom from is, and some of you know it, if you put it on the board, says, I do, you watch, we talk. Then I do, you help, we talk. Then you do, I help, we talk. And then you do, I watch, we talk. And it provides opportunities for people to try without having the full responsibility of doing it all themselves from the get-go. Sometimes we confuse equipping with empowerment. And I'm gonna keep that rant to myself. And while empowerment is good, it can be daunting to skip equipping and just throw people into serving the first time in the deep end by themselves. Speaking of responsibility, that takes us to the next value, and since I'm preaching, I can do that segue. Here's our next value. We emphasize responsibility more than authority. Responsibility is a big deal in this place. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Peter writes, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being willing to be examples to the flock. Big fan of our elders, y'all. And the elders and the pastors do have authority. We do not attempt to flaunt or wield that for personal gain, but we shepherd not because we must, but because we're willing to serve this church body under God's authority. And as Peter points out, that we are to be shepherds to the flock that is under our care, watching over them. So hear me. Under our care means the people that God has drawn and kept here. Some people are here that predate my tenure. Some people came with me from a church plant that we were a part of. Many of you have shown up since we merged together as a church plant in Church of the Valley. Some came because a friend or family member invited them. Some came because they found us online. Okay, awesome. 
Some came because they got a speeding ticket out front. No, wait, that was me in high school. Never mind. <laughs> Point is, we as leaders, elders, staff, teaching team, community group leaders, servants have a responsibility to care for who God has drawn and kept here. The hard part about this is sometimes in moments of transition, and guess what? There's been a lot of those. We don't always know who's part of this community and who isn't. That's why usually when we talk about offering and giving financially to the church, we say, if this is your church, we encourage you to give. And some of you might claim this is your community, but you don't give financially because, I don't know, could be a ton of reasons. But those God has entrusted under the leadership's care are people that are intending regularly, finding ways over time to serve, giving of their time, their talents, and their treasure, and don't just consume from this place, but are a part of the community, that they want to engage in community groups, that they want to engage in community with other people, and they attend enough to be known. We are not a large church. And there are some pros and cons to that, aren't there? But what we hope to be, no matter what our attendance is as a church, we hope to be where people belong and are committed rather than can hide and just put their time in church when they feel like it. So if we emphasize responsibility more than authority, we believe that those who are really committed here are our responsibility to walk with, to serve, and help grow more into Christ-likeness. But if you feel like you've been forgotten about, I'm sorry but I'd also encourage you to show up to find out where you can serve and how you can be in community and belong with others rather than avoid commitment and connection. If you're like, I'm talking about, no, I'm not. This is general. Belonging in community through commitment is hard because people disappoint us, don't they? Pastor Mike had a great quote in a text, so it's easy for me to write down. If someone at church hasn't disappointed you yet, you're not adequately, adequately connected. <laughs> well, that sounds sad. It's kind of true. The church is not perfect, but God gets glory by drawing different gifts, personalities, and types of people together centered on him and his son's finished work where we all then go in the same direction to make much of Jesus. But again, community is risky. It comes with the fear of being disappointed and hurt. And people don't like to suffer, but, here's my next point, Jesus digs scars. That's not actually my point, but it's true. Jesus digs scars. Life brings scars. And scars help us identify more and more with Jesus. But here's the real point. We embrace the hard stuff because suffering for Christ produces sanctification. We embrace the hard stuff because suffering for Christ produces sanctification. Now, this doesn't mean you need to go look for hard stuff in the church. We don't have to. Just have a relationship with people. It's coming. It will come looking for you. But scripture shows us the why and how it is unavoidable and yet redemptive. James chapter 1, 2 through 4, the brother The half-brother of Jesus says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance, endurance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So that was Peter. Now let's go Paul. Paul says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. Did I say Peter? James. That was James. Therefore, this is Paul. 
Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our comfortability. No, our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character and character, hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out onto our hope or into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then lastly, Peter. So we went James, then we went Paul. Now let's go Peter. It's not like they were all in the same room writing the same letters. It is in this, 1 Peter chapter 1, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You know what those three passages tell me? That confessing that Jesus is Lord that Jesus, this being Jesus's church, that the word of God being the actual words of God, that equipping is not optional, but is intentional, emphasizing responsibility more than authority and embracing the hard stuff for Christ because he produces sanctification in us are all great biblical values to have as a church. And know how I know that? Because scripture interprets scripture. And we want to do our best to keep what we value and emphasize up front and center because we don't want anyone to be at this church questioning what we're about. But this series, doing this series, comes with an ask of you. Here's the ask. If you're in, be in. Find ways to serve. Find ways to give. Find ways to engage and invite others into this community that you believe, you trust this community because you believe in the vision, you believe in the emphasis, you believe in the values. There's a card in front of you. I'm so grateful Robin is back on staff. Yay! Fill out the card. Her and I will organize those cards and we'll put them together and we'll figure out which ministry leaders you could talk with if you want to serve in some way, if you have questions about Jesus, if you have questions about baptism, whatever your next step for sanctification is, or maybe even to be in right standing with God, we invite you to fill out that card, drop it in the box as you leave. Worship team, come on up. We want us as a community to participate. We want us to grow all because and through the gospel of grace exercised in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is what we emphasize.